Welcome to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 60 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, The Right Take on Entertainment. This week we're speaking with Paul Ac, author and film critic for PluggedIn.com. You know, I get the chance to talk movies with Paul almost every preview screening that I go to. He's one of the smartest guys I know and a really shrewd observer of film. I think you're going to really enjoy what he has to say. This week's show is sponsored by Tarantino Shovels. When you just can't stop digging, think Tarantino. Before my chat with Paul, I wanted to talk about Star Wars. Now, I have to say, I grew up with Star Wars action figures. I remember seeing the first film four times. I am a Star Wars nerd. I'm a grown man, but I'm a nerd. (laughs) So there's that. But I can't shake how unhappy I was after walking out of The Last Jedi. And it wasn't just, hey, it didn't live up to my expectations. You know, the show will go on. Not every movie can be a great movie. There was something a little bit deeper and darker and sadder, really, about the experience. And it's just kind of the wave of Star Wars news that's kind of coming over us right now. Maybe that's really contributing to what's going on in my Star Wars nerdy brain. We've got a new Star Wars series that has been approved by the uh, team Disney. It's going to be spearheaded by Ryan Johnson, the director of The Last Jedi, but it's not going to be a Skywalker saga. It's going to be an entirely new story set in the Star Wars universe, whatever that means. Of course, that's not the only standalone series. The folks behind Game of Thrones, a fairly popular show you may have heard about, They've got the green light as well to do another series based on Star Wars that, again, doesn't connect to the Skywalker saga. It's going to be a brand new story, brand new set of characters in this particular universe. Meanwhile, the next Star Wars movie, Solo, a Star Wars story, well, we finally got a chance to see the trailer, and they did a really good job of hiding Han Solo. I don't think that's really the mission. Are they trying to create a sense of mystery, or are all the rumors and bad buzz true that... uh, the particular actor they've chosen for this particular role, Alden Eichenreich, is not the right guy to play Han Solo. Well, we're going to find out in May, but so far, got to be a little bit weary about that. So where does that leave the Star Wars franchise, the brand, the name, the, everything that we care about in the Star Wars universe? Well, I don't really know. It certainly doesn't seem like it's in healthy territory, and it's weird because you know when Disney bought Star Wars from George Lucas for $4 billion dollars, They made a lot of the right moves. I thought The Force Awakens, although flawed, really did kind of bridge the gap between the old and new characters, introduce us to Finn and Rey. I thought that was a great transition, a a near-perfect baton handoff from one generation to the next. And I thought, you know, old fans are going to hang with this. Maybe you get some new fans as well. The kids will appreciate BB-8 and sort of all the new things that they get to see. But it still felt like a Star Wars story, and I thought that was really critical. But then, of course, The Last Jedi comes around, and I... I have so many problems. Please go to HollywoodandToto.com to read my official review. I can't even get into all the ways that movie disappointed me. But what happens next? What if Solo isn't very good? The Last Jedi's box office, while spectacular, of course, is nowhere near what we saw for The Force Awakens. And I've spoken to a lot of people online and off saying, I don't have enthusiasm for the saga after The Last Jedi. And if you look at the movie and its ending, why would you? What are there, about three rebels left fighting for the resistance? I mean, the story doesn't have any sort of natural momentum at this point. 
So yeah, you know, the solo movie may surprise us. Maybe the Game of Thrones creators know exactly what to do with this particular universe. You know, hope springs eternal, but as a Star Wars fan, a longtime one, I have to say I've never been more, I guess, frustrated or maybe even disappointed in where the franchise is going next. You're listening to my daddy's podcast. Hey, silly sandwiches with the crust cut off. And now here's the celebrity tweet of the week. This week's honor goes to Kamel Nanjiani, the comedian and star of The Big Sick, a very good film that appeared last year and is on Amazon Prime right now, has apparently had enough with Team Trump. So he wrote a very eloquent defense of his principles, the reasoning behind... Nah, just kidding. Here we go, and you'll have to forgive my editing. I'm trying to keep this PG-13. F. Trump, F. John Kelly, F. Mike Pence, F. Amorosa, F. Paul Ryan, F. Mitch McConnell, F. Steve Bannon, F. Betsy DeVos, F. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, F. Trey Gowdy, F. Devin Nunes, F. Carter Page, F. Rob Porter, F. Sean Spicer, F. Hope Hicks, and F. Jared. Doesn't he sound nice? You're listening to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. My hit tip of the week is 50-50. This 2011 dramedy stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt as a young man who seems like he's heading in the right direction in life, and then he discovers he's got a tumor on his spine. The condition is serious, even life-threatening, and of course, the title comes from the fact that he does a little Google searching and finds out he's got a 50-50 chance of survival. Seth Rogen plays his best chum here, and of course, you know he's really good at that kind of role, but it's some of the darker places the story goes, including using that really terrible diagnosis to pick up chicks. Well... That's not what you expect from a movie like this. I guess you could say it's making lemonade out of lemons, but it's a little bit nasty at the same time. Now, I have to say, I'm really surprised at how well the film balances that darkness and the sweetness and the friendship angle. Lots of different competing emotions here, all put together very effectively. Good performances all around. I just really like this film. I'm, I've only seen it once. I'm really eager to see it again, maybe a little bit longer, just so my memory cells die down a bit and it's going to feel newer to me. But if you haven't seen it yet, Definitely check it out. 5050 is available now on Amazon Prime. Nobody puts baby in a corner. This is sporty stories of sheer adventure, my friend. What's your favorite scary movie? You will believe that a man can fly. That's right. We're talking about all these terrible franchises and more on... The franchise, the franchise. <laughs> co-hosted by Daniel Ehrenberg and Henry Papali, folks. That's right. So uh, check it out. Your boy Christian Toto from the Hollywood and Toto podcast has been on an episode about, yeah, baby, yeah. Yeah. Austin Powers, international man of mystery. That's right. And if you feel lucky, punks, you should tune into our show, too. That's right. The franchise on iTunes. Now let's get to my chat with Paul Acey. Paul is a film critic for PluggedIn.com. It's a Christian website that offers, offers readers a very detailed view of the latest films. He's going to explain more about that in a minute. He's also the author of God in the Streets of Gotham, a really terrific book about Batman and faith, and Burning Bush 2.0. His Patheos blog is Watching God, Finding Faith with a Box of Popcorn. And he also co-hosts the Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All podcast. Check that one out too. 
I really like hanging out with Paul. He's a good friend. He lives in Colorado along with me. I wish I could hang out with him more, but I got a chance to just talk films with him right now, right here. I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Here's my chat with Paul Acey. Well, Paul, you're a film critic for a website that helps fellow Christians choose the best movies to watch. And I'm just kind of curious, I, you know, I've seen you in action in the theater, but take, <laughs> take readers into your mindset and how your reviews are, are different than a traditional review. I mean, it, it's, it's certainly for a specific audience, but I think your, 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 your method's a little bit different. You, you have a different approach. Well, it is a little bit different, and and you're right. I think that that when you're a secular movie critic who's writing for for just folks who who want to know whether there's the movie's any good or not, you are able to sort of sit down and and watch the movie and maybe take a few notes. But for the most part, you're able to to really let yourself sink into the story. My work for for Plugged In is is much different in that we're writing primarily for families. Um, our our audiences are our, our audiences primarily parents with with kids in the house, uh, teens in the house. They're looking to see. Um, what they might be able to take their their sons and daughters to, um, and and a lot of people do come from themselves as well, but they have a very very high um, level of interest in the content that they might see, and and by that I mean the problematic content. Is it going to be too violent? Is there going to be a lot of sex? Is there a lot of cursing? All that kind of stuff, um, which means that that when I sit down and when my colleagues sit down, we have to take really detailed notes. And I know we probably annoy the people sitting next to us because we have these, you know, we're, we're always taking these notes and we're counting, we're literally counting swear words, um, which, which is, it's, it's a very interesting way to watch a movie. And, and I think that, uh, and, and while we provide a service, it's definitely a little bit different than most movie reviewers. Well, it begs two questions. One is, when you watch a film and you really enjoy it, you're at work watching the film. You're, you have to take all those notes. Do you say, I just can't wait to watch this movie again as a, as a sort of a person <laughs> in the audience? Yeah. Well, there are times when, when it's like that. You know, I think that, that, that we sit down and we take these notes and, and we can still, you know, the, the story, obviously movies are, are, you and I are both movie lovers. And, and so the stories can be very powerful regardless of content. And, and so we watch these things and, and we, we absorb the stories and we do, I, I do find myself thinking, I cannot wait to take my wife to this, or I can't wait to take my kids to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I can't wait to see it again. You know, yeah. I think that there are certain stories that really move us as people that, that we want to to see again and to, to see the things that we missed. We just love to dive into those stories repeatedly. Um, it, it, it is sort of interesting when I watch a movie that I really like that but that may have a lot of content. I find myself, you know, I'm, I'm marking everything down. I'm writing everything that I need to write down. And I find myself, you know, tears maybe streaming down my face and I'm trying to write while doing all this sort of stuff. And it's, it's a very strange thing. <laughs> it really is. Now, you have kind of a unique angle on sex and violence in the movies because I, I feel like as a moviegoer, I'm getting desensitized to it. I mean, I watched the last John Wick film and I go, Oh my goodness, I cannot believe how violent that was. But then I was okay with it just because it, I was kind of numbed into whatever John Wick was able to do to me. From your perspective, <laughs> do you find that films in general are getting more more sex and violence is, is playing a part? It's it's happening less. You you I mean, as a critic who's done this for a while now, 
do you see any trends or, or is it, is it, is it always case by case? You know, it, it's a really good question. And I think that, that probably a lot of people in our audience would say that, uh, that movies are just getting worse and worse and television is just getting worse and worse from that perspective. I don't know if I completely agree with that. I, I think that in some ways, obviously you have the 50 shades of grays of the world that, that really ramp up the sexual content. But from, from what I recall, we're both sort of children of the eighties. And I think that, that when you sit in and, and you watch a general PG 13 movie, you don't find nearly as much gratuitous sex as you might've back in the day when we were watching Top Gun and, and those types of things. I think that, that in some ways, those sort of elongated sexual scenes has been sort of throttled back. I do think that violence is getting more pervasive, and I think that as a culture, we tend to um, accept violence a lot more. Even even my uh, subset of evangelical Christians, who I primarily write to, I think that they're far more accepting of violence uh, than they are of sexual content in movies, and 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 I find that to be a, a pretty interesting dynamic. Um, yeah. And I also think that that language has gotten quite a bit worse as time has gone on, and 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 for me. That's one of the most puzzling things because I, I find that while you can make a, a a very strong argument why some movies need to show you the violence, you know, the Saving Private Ryan's of the world, uh, you can even make an argument in some cases where where sexual content is is required uh, for the story or augments the story. Very rarely do I think that that's the case with language, and I think that that maybe you and I could have a conversation about uh, the gritty realism of, of of some of these crime movies or something like that, where where the language obviously adds to the color and flavor of a certain locale or whatnot. But as an old movie fan, you know, I, I grew up in some ways on black and white movies. And my mom would take us to this old movie theater where we'd see these old classic Cary Grant, Humphrey Bogart movies. And to me, of course, those never had any language at all. And for me, I think that that you have that sense of storytelling that just doesn't require it. And, I, and I've yet to actually walk out of a theater and think to myself, you know what, you know what that movie really need? It needed a few more F words. I just don't think I've ever, I've never really felt that way. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think when I watch a movie now, if those words pop on the screen, especially like in a comedy like Baywatch, I don't know why this one really stuck in my craw. My immediate thought is, lazy 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 they're trying to kind of push our right. buttons in a right. way and you know what in our daily interactions people really don't speak like that you know if i'm in college and my buddies and are we're all drinking and having fun and, and letting loose yeah it's gonna sound like that but in sort of day-to-day interactions it doesn't so when you see that i think it was maybe boy that a movie i hated last year called um oh gosh the uh fist fight with uh, charlie day I'm thinking the language was just so over the top and so R-rated. I thought, no, I don't think anyone talks like this. I don't think we're there yet. So I agree. Uh, you know, as a film critic, you don't need special training, and I'm very grateful for that. Right? <laughs> but I'm yeah. kind of curious. Uh, you know, everyone has different backgrounds. They bring, you know, scholastically maybe your personal background. What do you think it is in your background that really either helped define you as a critic, shape you as a critic, or just kind of something you feed off of as a critic? Oh man, that's a great question. I I think that that one of the things that that I bring to the table is just is just number one a love of movies and 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 more broadly a love of stories. I'm I'm an English major. I'm a lit major. 
um, in, in college, that type of thing. I, I watched movies all growing up. I've, I've always loved them. And I'm sure that everybody who gets into the field we do is probably pretty much the same way, right? I mean, you don't become a movie critic when you think that movies are just sort of so-so. Well, it's but, for fame and glory, too. I mean, you know, don't, <laughs> yeah, let's not discount that. <laughs> Can't forget the money. Oodles of money. <laughs> <laughs> but so I, I really bring, I think, an appreciation of, of great storytelling. And, and so I really enjoy seeing that on screen. I think in uh, my unusual line of work, I also grew up in an evangelical family um, that really took uh, movie, what we call movie discernment pretty seriously. You know, there were definitely things that I could, couldn't watch. There were definitely things that I couldn't uh, listen to growing up. Um, and I think that that, that, has carried over with me to a certain extent. You know, I think that that as parents, we need to be fairly cautious about the sort of entertainment that we let our our kids watch and absorb and that type of thing. Um, and I think that every every family sort of draws a different line for that. So I, I think that in in some ways, in my very unusual niche in this very niche field that we're we're both in, I think that both of those prongs have really helped me going forward. I think that that I really have a strong appreciation of a story well told, but I also really value a story told um, in an age appropriate manner. And I and I and I have a strong I have a really strong appreciation for great stories told that really the whole family can can sit and watch together. You know, I have such an appreciation for what Pixar has done over the years where they have the insides outs and the and the ups of the world where they are among I think the very very best stories told within the culture. That's a good and they're point. They're so delightful to watch. They're 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 so powerful, and I think in some ways they're made for adults even more than kids. But kids can sit down and watch them and enjoy them and laugh at the lines and all that kind of stuff. Even as parents gravitate toward the the poignancy of some of these stories, the idea of of, of how painful it can be to let up, let go or grow up or whatnot. And I think that that Pixar is it, they what they are doing in Pixar is just brilliant. I agree. You know, I've spoken to a lot of different Pixar animators over the last like 10 years or so, and all they talk about is story, 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 and how they will shut things down if the story is not evolving or flowing or going in the direction that they hope it would. So interesting. I just have a quick aside. My sons are, are nine and six, and uh, it is a constant struggle for me when it comes to what they watch because I am absolutely dying for them to see Alien, and I'm dying for them to see... <laughs> All these movies that I love and grew up with and blah, blah, blah. But they're R-rated and they're not ready for that yet. And I've kind of at times dipped toes into that water. I, You know, there was a PG-13 horror movie that my son wanted to watch. I think it might have been Insidious. And he was scared by the, you know, when you put the DVD (laughs) in sort of the the title frame. Yeah. Sort of that image. He's like, he was out. (laughs) I'm like, all right, we're done. Done. But but I'm like. I'm like Eli. Please get to be 14, 15, 16. I want to. I, want to <laughs> I know because you want to share these things. Oh, it's, it's, I, I it's totally a get it. So, <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I tell you what, I, my kids are grown. My kids are 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 24 and 27, so they're they're lost causes by now. But you know, when you look at parenthood today, it is so difficult to be a parent. I mean, you you have our our culture is just saturated with entertainment and then there are some super powerful super great stories that that you do want to share with your kids and yet you have these these elements within them and and, and sometimes i think that it's just it's just it's so hard 
to figure out where the line is. Yeah, yeah. there is no line. It's your line. And That's exactly right. Line. And never, That's exactly never the twain right. shall meet. So uh. No, and, and it's one of those things where I think that, that I am very appreciative of the fact that, that every single kid is different and every single parent will draw a yes. line different place. And I think that that's one of the things that, that we try to do and that I try to do is just give parents the information that they they want and they need to make their own decision. Because if, if you try to, to actually say, oh, well, this is good for kids eight and up, mm-hmm. you just don't know. You yeah. just don't know. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> we're talking with film critic and author Paul A.C., senior associate editor with PluggedIn.com. You can follow him on Twitter at AC Paul, that's A S A Y P A U L. Check it out. Now, I want to talk briefly about being a film critic and getting jaded. You know, I, years ago I worked at a newspaper, and the main critic, and I won't say who he was, he was a very smart, talented, nice <laughs> fellow, but he would just fire off these one and a half star reviews of movies that were Oscar nominees. I mean, I feel like he was the hardest critic I've ever known as far as how discerning he was. But I also suspected that maybe maybe he's been doing it so long he's a little bit burned out. Do you, yeah. do you ever get to that point or, or flirt with it? And, and what do you do? I mean, is, is it sort of a, you have to kind of do like an etch-a-sketch and shake your, your mental synapses? Or what, how do you kind of avoid getting into that place? Well, you know, it's sort of interesting, again, because because I work in such a different world in some ways. You know, I think that, that lots of our readers and would really appreciate the more cynicism, the better. You know, um, we tend to be in, in kind of the, the Christian world that I walk. We tend to be very suspicious of entertainment. And so it's not as, as much of an issue in some ways. Sometimes I think that I, I could stand to be more cynical. <laughs> but but at, at the same time, you're right. I think that that. Uh, sometimes you and and I remember this actually reading reviews we I had a I used to read movie reviews uh religiously so to speak uh when I was a teen and I would always be appalled that that some of these reviewers would write some of my very favorite movies and give them just like two stars, two and a half stars and I thought what are these people thinking they you know they they're just so jaded and I do think that that since I've been in this business for, I guess, going on 10 years now, um, I can see how that happens. I think because because we see so many movies. I don't know how many movies you saw last year, Christian, but I think I saw close to 100. Mm-hmm. And so when you see so many movies, you um, – you see some of the same stories over and over again, and so you see some of the same themes. And, and because of that, I think that that as movie reviewers, we tend to gravitate toward not only resonant stories, but, but resonant stories told in a very different way that that we can appreciate because it's a story that we haven't seen before. Yeah, yeah and that's one of the reasons why I think The Shape of Water is doing so well because I know it's a Beauty and the Beast esque story, but it feels very original. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think that people are, I think particularly critics are, I think it's a little overrated. I think critics are responding to that. And it's only natural. And I, I, I agree, I, I, you know, formulaic wise, I, I'm a little bit, I get, I get filled, I get filled up and I almost have to kind of mentally reboot sometimes to say, hey, I'm kind of fresh <laughs> and I am the yeah. audience surrogate as, as are you and, and maybe in different ways, but that, that is our job. Yeah. Um, well, and it, it, but it is sort of interesting because I think that that one of the things that may inoculate us more than some, and and I may be pressing the point a little bit, I, I may be jumping to conclusions, but I think that that both of us 
we have a certain love for popular populist movies. I mean, we both have a side. geeky um, center of our soul in some ways. And I think that that actually helps keep us young and fresh because it's sometimes when we go into these movies, um, at least I find myself wanting to be a kid again. I want my I want to feel like I'm eight years old again, seeing, seeing this movie for the very first time. That's one of the things that I really loved about the new Star Wars movie, actually, is, and I know you didn't like it nearly <laughs> as much as I did. But, but for me, there were moments where I felt like I was seven or eight years old watching the first Star Wars movie again, and I love that. I think I had that more with The Force Awakens, but that, that's a podcast chat for a different day and a, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a duel for a different day. I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the Christian faith-based film movie genre, you know, faith-friendly films, you can whatever label you want to smack on it. I was kind of curious about two things. One, I've, I find it to be maturing. I think it's growing. I think it's kind of getting more sophisticated and the stories are getting more uh, more varied. I want to get your, if you agree or disagree. And I also want to say, is, is sort of slapping that label on, oh, it's a faith-based movie. Is that doing a disservice because most people are people of faith and why, why can't their stories be told? Yeah, no, it, I think it's a really interesting question. Both of those are really interesting questions. And I think that... Uh, the first one, I would agree with you. I think that that the faith-based movie industry is getting stronger, and I think it's getting better. Um, now, that's not to say that it doesn't have a ways to go. I don't think that that most of us would look at, at most explicitly Christian movies and say, you know, this should be nominated for an Oscar. Um, they have some storytelling weaknesses. There's 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 it's a it's a work in progress. It really is. The whole industry is a work in progress, and I think it will be a while before we uh, get to the point where where there's going to be this this beautiful resonant story that I think in some ways uh, does does justice to the faith that that I hold so dear um, but I, I also think that when you're talking it, it, it the question of whether the label helps or hurts is a fascinating one. And, and to, be, to be honest with you, I'm not sure if I've completely made up my mind on, on this point. I, I do know that for some of the very, very explicitly Christian movies, um, The God's Not Dead of the World, which, which frankly I, I did not appreciate very much, but I know a lot of people really did. And I think that, that people went to – some people go to The God's Not Dead of the World um, because they are so explicitly faith-based and it, and it scratches sort of this, this theological, philosophical, even sometimes political itch that they have. Um, and I think that in some ways Hollywood has not done a very good job of highlighting you know, the faith of some of their characters. I think that, that most of the time, and this goes back way into, into the 1930s and 40s, I think that, that faith, because it's such a, a volatile topic and can be so polarizing, I think that Hollywood has just generally stayed away from stories that, that even deal very lightly with faith. Um, but I think that that does a disservice to the stories themselves because um, – Faith is a huge motivating faith factor in so many people's lives. I mean, I, I know people who have upturned uh, their families, their worlds, because they wanted to follow God's call, what they feel is God's call. Um, and and I think that that because faith and 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 God 
is so important to us inherently that makes for interesting stories. You know, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, I think that that when you ignore faith as an element of of a story, you're weakening the story. Um, because it's just, it's a fascinating thing, no matter where you come from it. And I, I think that, that if Hollywood did a better job of incorporating, um, faith oriented storylines or, or even subplots or, or even just gave us some, some resonant Christian characters that we feel, felt like we could, uh, embrace and see ourselves in, as opposed to sometimes these, these caricatures that were given, I think that, that there wouldn't be such a, hunger for those explicit faith-based films. I think that that we would be able to see ourselves in kind of that Hollywood environment and and and, and those movies would resonate with us so much more. That's an amazing point. I want to uh, do two quick examples. One was Alien Covenant and the other one was the more recent uh, Cloverfield Paradox. Both those films had characters where they describe their faith or have a faith moment and then they're done. It was like, okay, we did right. that. We checked that box. And we're not going right, to exactly. carry that through in any significant way. We have no time, no patience, no interest in, you know, sort of using it as a as a theme or a thread. And uh, it just kind of struck me because it struck me when it happened. And then I thought back, wait, wait a minute, why would they even introduce that if they're not going to even do anything with it? But that's just the way it happens. And um, yeah, real quickly, do you think that uh, have you seen Lady Bird? I have seen Lady Bird. I thought that yes. that had a very interesting take on faith where. It wasn't a one and done. It was, it had that sort of a teen trying to shake it, and then mm-hmm. at the end, it sort of it kind of circled back in a way which I thought was both real and not offensive at all. I, I, what, what's your yeah. take on it? You, no, I, I I totally agree. And, I, and that was, as a matter of fact, when you started talking about Alien Covenant, that was sort of like the antidote that jumped into my mind, <laughs> yes. Lady Bird. You know, and and you have what you say about Alien Covenant was absolutely right. You have this character who expresses these these thoughts about faith. He feels like, and because of that, he feels like he could be one of the most compelling characters of the whole movie. I mean, you see this struggle within him trying to figure out how to manifest his faith, how that means, what that means to his leadership, and then they kill him off. <laughs> and you never really get a sense of the character. Yeah, that's Lady Bird is almost the exception to everything that I've been talking about. And, and for me, it gives me hope of, of what Hollywood can do. Uh, Lady Bird, you're absolutely right. The character is a girl who goes to this this Catholic Christian school. She doesn't like it very much. She is sort of at that point in, in her life where she looks around her world and she doesn't like anything she sees. She's sick of her family. She doesn't like her hometown. She despises her her, her Catholic you know school. She has no place for faith in, in her life. And and as I as I go through kind of what I'm talking about, just a just a little caveat. I mean, this is an R-rated movie, so there's some difficult parts to it. But but when as the story goes through and you follow this really winsome, really funny girl uh, as she goes through her senior year of of high school, she finds her way back, oddly enough, to all those things that she felt like she needed to reject. Um, she grows to have a new appreciation for her her mom. Um, and, and one of the most poignant moments, I, I don't think this is really spoiling anything because it's not really a spoilery type of movie, but but it, at the end, one of the things that, that, that 
almost brought me to tears was she she hears she's she's in college now she's away from everything that's familiar to her she hears the sound of church bells and she goes into the church and you can feel that she feels at home and for me that was just beautiful i had a chance to talk with uh, with greta gerwig about the about the movie and, and she really wanted to express kind of what she had gone to a catholic school herself and she really wanted to express how that church changed her or how that school changed her and and the the beautiful people that she met there she wanted to get away from sort of that hollywood stereotype that you see so much and and be more representative of the experience that she had and i think i think it was beautiful and poignant and deeply impactful for for people of faith like i am while not being i don't think off-putting to people who don't necessarily share that faith they see that as part of her story and so they're able to embrace it i think as when it's done as eloquently and as beautifully and as real as that was all uh, all transpired i think that's where you get no it's not offensive no it's not someone that would drive away an atheist i think they kind of would get into the story uh, one last question for you paul before i let you go and I, I feel like i can't i can't leave you without asking about this topic <laughs> it is it is such a hot button now and i, I think it's going to be for a while the me too movement and sort of the sexual allegations in hollywood as an outsider as someone who kind of looks at this at the system in a way that i think is more intense than most people what are you most impressed about when you see the progress and what kind of leaves you the most skeptical about what we're seeing within the Hollywood movement? Yeah, you know, I, I, that's a fascinating question. And I think that that what what I'm seeing, and this is this is something that that may be a little bit controversial to some, but but in some ways I feel like we're sort of in um, a, a period of time where morality really matters. It's not the the sort of Christian morality that that you know I think most of us sort of jump to when we think about our own childhoods or we think back to the 1950s or you know even the moral majority or whatnot. Um, we we are living in a time where people really understand that that actions and deeds really mean something. We don't live in a world where. Anything really should go. There are limits to what we can do, and there there are things that we should really we should hold ourselves to higher standards than sometimes we have in the past. And I think from from that perspective, what I see from the Me Too movement is this desire to hold people accountable for what they've done, um, to encourage people as they go forward to really consider how they treat uh, to treat others. And I think that that's really valuable and 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 long long overdue. Um, you do worry, as with any period of, of grand morality, that there's going to be sort of this this overstep. And I don't know if I'm really equipped to, to speak to whether we've hit that, that point where people are being unfairly accused or unfairly maligned. Um, I think that there's always a danger of rushing to judgment um, because – when you when you accuse somebody of something that they didn't do, uh, those accusations will stick with you for the rest of your life. And so you always have to be very, very worried about rushing the judgment. And I do think that that sometimes there's always sort of this overreach that we can reach. Um, so I think that the, that would be one of the, the concerns that I would have going forward. Uh 
because I think that's just sort of human nature. I think that that we see these injustices, we find them horrible, and so we push against them so hard that it, that sometimes we end up hurting people who really shouldn't be hurt. Yeah. Uh, and and whether we've reached that point or not, I'm just I just don't feel like I have enough knowledge to know whether we have. I think that overall, I think the Me Too movement has been a good thing, and I'm really gratified that um, people are really standing up and 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 hopefully getting to the point where where this sort of stuff that was apparently so pervasive in Hollywood is just not tolerated anymore. Yeah, if the next Harvey Weinstein has a th- second thought about doing what he wants to do, then that's that's immediately right. a good first step. So Exactly. Right. Well, thanks again, Paul, for joining the HitCast. You can find Paul's film reviews at PluggedIn.com, and please watch his, or check out his excellent Bat book, God on the Streets of Gotham. I love that one. And also, <laughs> he's got out Burning Bush 2.0, How Pop Culture Replaced the Prophet. And you can find links to both on the show notes page at hollywoodintoto.com. Paul, really appreciate your time, and uh, maybe we can uh, revisit this conversation with or without The uh, Last Jedi. <laughs> Love to do it. Love okay. to do it anytime. Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out hollywoodintoto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at hollywoodintoto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. The Medicare annual election period deadline is almost here. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who started their search for coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online, so he started at MyHealthPolicy.com. I took my time and found the coverage I was looking for. And done. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plans, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com and done. Switched to a better plan. And Michael. I met with a local licensed insurance agent face-to-face. And done. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to compare top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call.